Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 117, being recorded on Thursday, February 15th, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Well, Jason's kind of a light uh, news week. There are a couple things we want to cover um, before we jump into listener news. We warmed up the old Facebook page, which... Uh, is my responsibility, and I have to have a mea culpa that I have not been very active posting to our listeners there. So uh, one of my New Year's resolutions, I know it's a little late for those here, um, late February, uh, is to try to be more active on there and engage folks. So we are going to be able to handle um, some pretty great listener questions that we got today. Uh, Before we jump into that, you have a new gadget I want to hear about. I did. I'm a very romantic guy, so uh, for Valentine's Day, I got my wife a Apple HomePod. Wow, nice. That will last longer than a dozen roses. Yeah, uh, it will, although I don't think it was a big hit. Um, I think she appreciated the gesture and my super artistic rapping. You, can, you can't even imagine how impressive that was. Um, but the HomePod itself, I wasn't personally very excited about like I had read a bunch of mediocre reviews um, as we've talked a lot about on the show I have a house full of Alexa devices in fact I have extra Alexa devices at the moment Um, and so there really wasn't anything I was looking forward to in a HomePod but my wife is uh, heavily steeped in the Apple ecosystem she had mentioned it a few times and she is a very heavy Apple Music user. So I figured, okay, well, you know what I mean? Uh, it's present for her. She'd been talking about it, so we'll, we'll go ahead and get one, and I'll surprise her. Um, and I'm sorry to report that all of the mediocre reviews we sort of experienced firsthand, right? Like, it, uh, like I don't think Siri is uh, as useful as, as uh, Alexa in general and the version of Siri on the... The um, HomePod is kind of a dumbed-down version of Siri, so it was kind of annoying. It seems to understand us less than than uh, the Alexa does. I will say the audio fidelity is great. Like the audio, it's definitely a higher quality speaker than any of my Alexa devices, which are all Amazon first-party ones. I don't have any of the the third-party speakers. Um, sounds great, but the voice interface sucks, and it's it's just not compelling to have this extra um gadget in your house just to play one music service um and so i think uh even my wife who's a apple fangirl and kind of disposed to like their stuff i don't think she likes it enough to keep it man um do you have the so i've read a lot of people that compare it to the sonos i forget what their name is for the one with alexa i think it's the sonos one that has alexa sonos in one. it and i've played yeah. with it um i haven't had it in my house um, and I think those are mixed bags. So like this, uh, Sonos is, has really good audio quality in general. I actually have a bunch of Sonos speakers. Um, and people are saying that it's comparable audio fidelity to the home pod. If anything, it's maybe a hair lower quality. There's some pretty sophisticated 
um, auto tuning in the Apple speaker that I'm not sure the Sonos matches, but the Sonos is a hundred bucks less. Uh, you know, it's, it's debatable whether it has worse audio fidelity and it supports Alexa and they're soon going to add Google assistant to it as well. So way better value, way more utility. The only reason I haven't bought one, um, is it actually, uh, Amazon uh, slightly neuters all the third-party speakers. So um, the only music service that the third-party speakers fully support is Amazon Music, which is mostly what we use in my family on the Alexa devices. But if you're a, a Spotify or Pandora user and, you know, th- there's a very good Spotify experience on the on the indigenous Alexas, I think, I think that might be what you use, if I'm remembering right. Yep. Are you a Correct. Spotify guy? Yep. Um, good sapient razorfish client. So we certainly like Spotify. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, they're, uh, they, they, uh, Amazon doesn't currently make that available on the third party speakers that have Alexa in it, which isn't, uh, like clearly an intentional, uh, way to disadvantage those speakers. Interesting. Cause Sonos, I have also a Sonos system and it's pretty agnostic, you know, so I can like, being Spotify to it, XM radio. I think it'll do Apple music. Um, I think it will. Um, and so it's weird that that one is going to be like almost a step back for them. Well, so, uh, listeners check me on this, but I think the actual case, the Sonos one speaker is a Sonos speaker. And so it actually runs the Sonos firmware and you can use the Sonos app. So, so you can run Spotify using the Sonos app on your Sonos One speaker. What you can't do is use Alexa voice commands to play Sonos, uh, to play Spotify music on that Sonos One. Got it. Okay. Okay. Cool. Wow. I learned a lot about uh, the speaker market here. Uh, and then I've seen reports that the HomePod is leaving white rings on everyone's furniture. Did uh, did it also damage your furniture? Yeah. Uh, so it is not where we have it on a kind of a, a Formica desk, so it maybe is a little safer. Um, but so it's not on a like a nice piece of wood furniture. But I have seen those same reports. It is the speaker is both slightly smaller than I expected it to be. I mean, it's 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 about the same height as my Alexa's, and it's a little fatter. And I expected it to be maybe taller, um, but it's. It's super heavy uh, for its size. Like it's very, it's very dense, and it's because it has this big subwoofer in the bottom. And I guess it's just outputting so much low, low energy that it's uh, moving around a little bit. And it has like this white rubberized uh, donut on the bottom of it. And apparently, when that thing moves around, it it's leaving a mark. Hmm. So you're, it's about the same size as the old, the original Alexa, kind of the cylinder, or more like the little one that has like a felt kind of feel to it? Yeah, no. So it's the same height. Uh, actually, as I'm staring at them side by side, it's it's like a touch shorter um, than an original Alexa cylinder. Uh, it's much it's much fatter than an Alexa. In fact, it's it's uh, uh, diameter is probably like at least twice twice the diameter of the Alexa. Whoa. Okay. Hmm. Uh, and it does have a weird, it, 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 it's also covered in fabric, but what's slightly weird, it freaked me out the first time I picked it up. It almost feels like you can dent it. It almost feels like it squishes in a little bit. Mm, and then it seems like it, it restores. Springs up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then that makes you worry. You're going to punch your thumb through the thing. Yeah. Don't want to do that. 
Cool. Thanks for that uh, gadget experience report. It wouldn't be a Jason Scott show without some Amazon news. Your margin is their opportunity. Okay, this one dropped. Uh, it was bad timing uh, for us from a podcast perspective because we recorded our show last Thursday, uh, good old episode 116. And then sure enough, Friday morning, some big Amazon news dropped. Uh, and this is Amazon, uh, you know, uh, it's not clear if it was leaked or what happened, but, um, you know, they've been working with some third party sellers for this full on delivery service that's called ship with Amazon. So, uh, it's going to pilot in LA, it looks like, and the articles I've read said it's going to roll out into 40 cities pretty quickly. And the reason that makes sense is prime now is in 40 cities and prime now built this Uber like 1099 car delivery network called flex. So reading those tea leaves, you know, what I'm thinking is happening here is Amazon started flex to work with their 40 prime now fulfillment centers, which are a different footprint than their normal uh, fulfillment centers. Um, then they started doing some deliveries out of traditional fulfillment centers with their own network of flex drivers. Uh, and also, you know, actual Amazon employees and whatnot. And then now it looks like they will offer to third-party sellers the ability to ship with Amazon, where if you were a third-party in LA, let's say you were, uh, I'll pick on my friend Jack Shing, who's uh, E4 City. He has a big warehouse in LA. Um, and someone in LA bought one of his products. They could get that product in two hours. And an Amazon driver would come to his warehouse, pick this up, and take it to the customer. Um, and so that would leverage the Flex network. So... That's pretty interesting. You know, I we've been talking a lot on the show. It was my 2017 prediction that I re-upped for this year that Amazon would get more into direct delivery. Um, and here you see, you know, it, it's it's not that hard to jump from that part of the Venn diagram to, hey, you know, retailer X, uh, Nordstrom's, um, you know, here's your fulfillment centers. We can help you deliver uh, as well. And then uh, you could even ingest that product into the burgeoning Amazon fulfillment system network with airplanes and everything and, and effectively have a full on FedEx UPS competitor. Yeah. And I think that's something, uh, that, that, uh, you in particular, but we've, we've discussed on this show a number of times that, that, that seemed like a, a likely play for Amazon to make. Yeah. And then, uh, it was interesting. So internet retailer, and I'll, I'll footnote this cause I know you, how you feel about surveys, but they did a survey of, I think it was 200 retailers. Um, and when I looked at kind of the size, most of them would, I would call kind of sellers, you know, uh, you know, uh, and th but then like a good, a third of them were more larger retailers, kind of IR 500 types, uh, something like 70% said they would, they would either strongly try or, or, you know, you know, only 30% said they wouldn't use an Amazon shipping service. Um, and the 70% said half of that 70% said it would have to be a bit cheaper than current offerings. Um, and I, you know, I think it's gonna be very interesting. Um, this holiday will probably not be hugely impacted, but next year is going to be very interesting because I know you've said when you draw the lines of the amount of shipping needed out there and what's available, Amazon will have consumed most of it. And, you know, so it seems like Amazon's read those tea leaves and is finding a release valve with this new ship with Amazon program. Exactly. Um, and it, you know, a couple of things kind of, kind of come to mind, uh, the day before in our podcast, we we had talked about 
um, some of their seller fulfilled uh, uh, FBA programs and including a new program where they were putting uh, Amazon's putting their own software in customers warehouses. And clearly, like those two pieces of news are at least partially related. You could imagine if a bunch of of uh, shippers are running Amazon software to manage their shipment and, you know, that they, that software could uh, pick best shipping method and, and uh, you know, have a, sort of a bias towards Amazon shipping service. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah, it, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people will say, well, you know, this route is unprofitable, that route's unprofitable uh, and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, having watched Amazon kind of decompose other markets pretty quickly, <clears throat> they they know where the profit is. So they'll they'll go and, you know, and they're. You know, their profit is your profit is their opportunity, right? So they're going to go and they're going to find the routes that are most profitable for third party shippers, and they're going to pull those in house because it, by logic, if it's profitable for for the shipper, it will be prof. Amazon will have the best savings by you know uh, cutting that loop out. So so it's going to be really interesting to see what happens when they start doing this. You know, you, you can't only look at it from a oh Amazon just diverted one you know point one percent of volume because that point one percent of volume could be like eight percent of margin uh, of the deal that people have with, with Amazon. So it's going to be really interesting to watch the positioning here. Exactly, I think like they they don't have to completely match. Uh, UPS and FedEx's network to disrupt them, right? If they just take some of those most profitable deliveries and bring those in house, um, you know that that can create enough of an inflection point that causes some new unique pain for UPS and FedEx. And I think I don't think Amazon wakes up in the morning and goes, "How can we ruin UPS's life?" I, you know, I think they're more thinking about how they can make their own lives better. Uh, you know, this solves some of their their peak demand problems. It solves like controlling one of their fastest growing expense lines, which is shipping. Um, and in the long run, you could imagine them building all kinds of reverse logistic services that UPS and FedEx just might not be that interested in, but that are really important customer experiences for e-commerce, right? Like so easier returns, um, you know, you you hypothesized that, hey, if there's a bunch of warehouses that are all all uh, fulfilling by Amazon and they all have Amazon software in there, like Amazon could literally create a new marketplace um, for warehouse capacity and sort of flex store Amazon goods in other people's warehouses that are running their software, you know, in a two sided marketplace exactly um, like like they do uh, for for third party selling. So. So lots of interesting new things that could evolve from here that make this super interesting. Um, uh, a couple of things like that that I like to point out. Uh, I do feel like you have been talking about this for an awfully long time. I know Colin Sebastian was one of the first analysts to talk about this, but I, I did have to chuckle a little bit. Like I feel like the all of Twitter broke their arms congratulating themselves for predicting this. Um, and I, I'm I'm not sure like that you know it you had to be the cleverest person in the world to predict this three months ago um, that Amazon would eventually try to monetize this like you know given that that's the model they've uh, they followed with so many other things and uh, so I did I do think it's funny I I maybe made a joke that like the only person on the planet that didn't fully predict this is the CEO of of UPS that kind of had a had a, uh, a quote last year that we don't believe their strategy, Amazon strategy is to do it themselves. And the reason we believe that is, is we have this huge infrastructure. We're investing in technology. We have a great mutual relationship with Amazon. Um, 
like, you know, obviously that was a bad day at UPS when, when Amazon, when the SWA leaked. Um, and coincidentally enough, this is the month when our friends at FedEx and UPS do their annual rate increases. And so this year, if you're a shipper, um, your the base UPS and FedEx rate went up by 4.9%. So that's a huge operating expense for most e-commerce businesses to absorb many of which are struggling to be profitable already um now their their operating costs are five percent more and oh by the way uh most of the shipping went up even higher because fedex and ups are really designed for business to business shipping so they're highly optimized for taking package parcels to businesses they're least efficient at deli- at residential deliveries. And so a number of years ago, they introduced a surcharge for residential deliveries uh, to kind of compensate them for, for the, the greater expense of those home deliveries. Um, and those surcharges went up. Uh, it's kind of a on a sliding scale. So it's, there's not an exact number, but the surcharges went up like 8%. Mm. So very wow. meaningful increases from FedEx and UPS. And it's clear, you know, they're, they're, maxed out on capacity they're not growing as fast as demand is growing and so they're trying to you know maximize the value of the capacity they have by charging more yeah yeah and uh, a couple other interesting facts so fedex says no one customers more than three percent of their volume um so that you know a lot of people read that and say that's kind of where amazon is amazon definitely sends you know the most between fedex and ups to ups and ups says amazon's about 10 percent of their volume so it's not cataclysmic for any of these guys, um, you know, to quote unquote lose some of the Amazon business. What, what I think everyone underestimates, though, is Amazon just kind of, you know, picking these very profitable businesses and offering them, even if it doesn't involve Amazon at all, eventually. Uh, and then that's going to be, you know, just like cloud computing, you can you can host Netflix host, you know, on AWS, and it's like a competitor using their cloud infrastructure, which in the old world, you know, offline world doesn't make any sense at all. Um, but, you know, for Netflix, the economics are so attractive, they're willing to do that. And, you know, so what if, uh, I don't know, I doubt Walmart would ever do it, but what if Macy's starts shipping everything? What if Apple started, you know, doing deliveries using the Amazon network? Uh, you know, that starts to get pretty interesting and, and mind-bending of what some of the implications are. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, I, I will, like, just minor props like UPS and FedEx are well-run companies. Like they're they're smart to be making the most they can on the ca- capacity they have. And props to them for not having a huge customer concentration problem. Because <laughs> I feel like in in uh, most B two B businesses, you you'd have a much bigger concentration problem than your largest customer being three percent of your business. Yeah, cool. So that was the big news. Let's make sure we want to make sure we cover these listener questions. So let's jump into them. Listener questions. And Jason, we got four really meaty questions, uh, and uh, it was good news for me. Three of them were really in your alley, and one is mine. So uh, let's ask you the first question. Uh, so uh, this is from Amit Agarwal, uh, and he says, thanks for the amazing podcast. So clearly Amit has impeccable taste uh, and, and is awesome to begin with. And he wants to know, what's the future trend in pricing? Everyday low pricing or coupon-based pricing? Question mark, question mark. So maybe um, 
you know, I know you're ninja level on this, but maybe give us a 101 on uh, what is EDLP, what's it mean online, and then where do you think kind of retail pricing goes and then e-commerce pricing? Yeah. So so EDLP is an acronym for everyday low prices. Um, in the retail ecosystem, the, the retailer that, that most uh, – uh, supports EDLP and it, it literally is sort of kind of their, their core value proposition is Walmart. Um, so in, in general, they, they very aggressively try to get prices on all their goods as low as possible. And in general, the pricing does not fluctuate a lot based on sales and promotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the, the idea is the consumer doesn't have to worry that they're getting a low price. They just kind of know. Exactly. And, and they'll automatically roll it back if, if Target has toothpaste at a buck, you know, you can count on Walmart to do a quote unquote rollback and they'll be at like 99 cents. Exactly. So. Uh, and, and like, you know, they, they don't make as big a deal about it being their culture, but uh, for, for a slightly different reason, Costco is a great example of EDLP. Like they, Costco literally has hard rules for the merchant about the maximum margin they can take on a product. So when the price to them goes down, they, they are literally mandated to pass that price on to the the customer. And so, you know, and you don't necessarily walk through Costco looking for sales. You, your condition that everything in, in Costco is a, uh, consistent, like, you know, good deal based on volume and, and all these things. And, and so, um, those are the kind of retailers that are on the EDLP side of the spectrum. Uh, for a long time, uh, JC Penney was the poster child for promotional pricing and they, they still are very promotional, but what made them the poster child is, uh, when the former uh, re- retail guru from Apple, Ron Johnson, went to JCPenney, he tried to change them from their highly promotional pricing strategy to essentially EDLP. And so that that really raised the profile of how promotional JCPenney had been before. Uh, but, you know, I would argue um, Macy is very is very promotional. Um, and, you know, frankly, most of retail is is pretty promotional so the the outliers although they're they're the largest two retailers in in north america are the edlp retailers um these new hyper aggressive grocery stores like aldi and lidl are also edlp um so what's the future uh i think the future is edlp like a if you just do a survey of the most successful retailers they're edlp another uh, and this is straining the definition of EDLP slightly, but another hyper successful retailer that's EDLP is Apple. Hmm, like okay. not, not very promotional, like the low price isn't particularly low. Um, but you know, it's very rare that they have deals and when they have deals, they're not very deep, um, and very, very consistent pricing. And you've never seen a sale sign has never popped up anywhere in an Apple store. Um, so you look at all those successful retailers, they're all EDLP. You look at a lot of the struggling retailers, they're more promotional. Um, but, you know, I'm not sure that's that's complete causation versus correlation. The reason I say that EDLP is the future of pricing is because of digital disruption, right? Like, thanks to all the research we now do online and, you know, uh, our huge access to information and the fact um that, that, you know, there are no more secrets in the world anymore. We've shifted from this world of what I call price obfuscation, where you essentially only saw the prices the retailer wanted you to see. And when they did this kind of like fake is, was pricing, where they show you a low price, a high price, mark it out and show you a low price, 
you have no way to know that that high price wasn't really the price that was offered yesterday. Um, and so you would believe the retailer. Today, you read some app or some blog or you get some some uh, uh, email newsletter and you, you know exactly what retailers are playing what games with pricing. And so you we now have we're, this emerging world of perfect transparency. And in the world of perfect transparency, promotions just aren't as effective – um, as they they used to be, a lot of the the promotions rely on these psychological tricks that don't work as well when the customer is fully armed with all the information and who has a better deal um, and how how much more or less you're paying than the best deal and all these sorts of things. So I sort of feel in general that transparency is forcing the world to EDLP. The most successful retailers are EDLP, and then I have to throw a huge caveat out there as. Uh, both uh, Macy's in the distant past and JCPenney more recently have proven to us it's next to impossible to transition from being a promotional retailer to an EDLP retailer. Um, so when customers are accustomed to those promotions, they punish you when you try to make that transition. And no retailer that I'm aware of has been willing to stick with that transition long enough to make it work. So they all have tried taking a, an early hit and kind of reverted to the original pricing model. And the same thing sort of plays out every holiday season when retailers uh, rely on promotions to sell more over the holidays and to comp against last year when they were also promotional. Um, and so we like most retailers that like have a history of promotions, become addicted to those promotions. And so far, it's proven to be a almost unkickable addiction. So don't expect to see a, a bunch of retailers say, oh, Goldberg said uh, EDLP beats promotional pricing, so we're going to switch. Uh, I think you're literally going to have to wait for those business models to, you know, those retailers to to sort of expire or term out, and you'll see the majority of new retailers emerging um, and certainly all the digitally native brands adopting much more EDLP pricing strategies. And then the one big caveat on all of this is the new replacement for promotions in this EDLP world becomes personalized dynamic pricing, right? So we're just starting to see this, but in lieu of a one-size-fits-all, 30% off on these deals – are all the custom offers you're going to get when you abandon something in your cart that's based on your unique shopping behavior and your past purchases and all the evil data that the marketers have collected about you. Um, and so, you know, I think uh, Amazon's a perfect example of um, a highly dynamic EDLP pricer. Yeah, yeah. The um, It's interesting because someone asked me, uh, a Walmart type person asked me, you know, how do you think about Amazon in an EDL, EDLP world? And I, I think of it as like every nanosecond low pricing, right? So, um, you know, full disclosure, one of our features at Channel Advisor is a repricing engine. Um, and we actually have two of these things. Um, and this is a very popular functionality for sellers because once you get to scale, you literally cannot keep up with the marketplace. It's, it's effectively a stock market for products on Amazon. Every every ASIN is constantly repricing and, you know, sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. Um, so this is why, uh, you know, the Amazon bookstore doesn't have prices because 
they may find the book that you're looking at, uh, you know, five minutes ago, lowered its price somewhere and they want to lower that price. And in a physical world, you, you can't change prices that quickly because the infrastructure is just not really quite there yet. Um, so what, what does that do? So, so, so let's, let's use Walmart to pick on them. So they're, they're EDLP, but then online, they've got to be competing with Amazon. So do you, do you have these periods of time where your online prices are, are very, you know, kind of more dynamic than your store just because of the, the nature of the, the store being slow to be able to change prices? Exactly. That is the common practice right now is that very few really progressive retailers have adopted what I call universal pricing, which means – they offer the same price to you regardless of channel um, because they're EDLP in the stores and they're, they're more to your point that, you know, they're more dynamic than daily online. Um, and then in the case of Walmart specifically, like you can even think about the, uh, you know, as as they sort of jettify the value propositions at Walmart. Right. Um where, you know, Jet will give you a, di- a custom discount based on your purchases. You're buying a bunch of stuff from this particular fulfillment center, so I'm going to make other purchases from that fulfillment center cheaper. Or you're buying products from this particular vendor, I'm going to make other purchases from that vendor cheaper. Or, you know, let you opt out of some of the optional costs um, and those sorts of things. Uh, a big version of Walmart adopting that strategy more gl- more globally is when you order something online from Walmart – um, and you're willing to have that item shipped to the store instead of to your home, uh, Walmart has a very efficient delivery vehicle for delivering items to store. And so uh, that you know some of that savings that they're getting by not having to use UPS, uh, they're now passing on to the customer. And so the the ramifications of that greater dynamic pricing online and then the definite ramifications of the personalized pricing online that to your point, you know, very few retailers have tried to do personal product pricing in, in store um, has resulted in there being some unfortunate price fragmentation where, you know, there, there are now multiple prices at, at Walmart. Right. And I, I feel like that's a imperfect compromise that Walmart has to deal with because like technically part of EDLP should be, it's the same low price everywhere. Um, but because they're trying to offer this dynamic pricing and this personalized offer system, the pricing is different. And it's it's frankly getting more complicated, not less, because if you order online groceries and you're going to do curbside pickup, should you pay the same price um, for someone to walk around that store and pick all those items for you as someone that bought them in the store and did the work themselves? Like you could you could, you know, argue that there should be a different price for curbside pickup and a different price for delivery. And in general, we've learned from the psychology of consumers that they don't like paying fees. So they'd rather those costs be built into the the product prices. But then that means, wait a minute, there's an online price at Walmart and a grocery pickup price at Walmart and a, uh, an in-store price at Walmart. And, you know, all of that it flies in the face of the original Sam Walton EDLP premise. So it's a... It's a tricky, unclean uh, world at the moment. In the long run, I think stores figure out how to get more dynamic in the store, and then we get back to more universal pricing and the same offer everywhere. And you know, the uh, my colleagues are laughing if they're listening to this right now because I'm famous for every year predicting 
that this is going to be the year when we start to see much greater adoption of electronic price tags and electronic fact tags because retailers need to get more dynamic in the store and daily repricing is no longer dynamic enough. Um, and these uh, electronic fact tags are the way to do that. And every year I predict it and it, it never seems to happen. One uh, one interesting outcropping of this that I find really fascinating, and, and we run into this a lot at Channel Advisor, is um, you know all this this topics that we talked about create inefficiencies in the system. And when you have inefficiencies, they they can get to be pretty wide. Uh, you have product what I call product arbitragers. So uh, for you know the most classic example is um, you know arbitraging between offline and online. So someone will become an expert at something like uh, a lot of these guys are involved in the sneaker world. So they'll they'll have a really good idea of what you know every line of Nike's and Adidas and whatnot are worth. Uh, but then they know that like Foot Locker and the, the the stores they do their markdowns on Thursdays. So they'll they'll line up at, you know they'll camp out they'll get there and they will literally load up car loads of these things take them to a warehouse sell them on eBay and Amazon for like 30% you know kind of kind of profit because you know the store is inefficiently running this algorithm and there's these people that that are taking advantage of their their you know whatever I would argue it's inefficient because they're they're arbitraging and getting the value from that inefficiencies. Um, and then, you know, it gets even more crazy because there's people that will look at the inefficiencies between marketplaces like eBay, Amazon and Walmart. Uh, and they'll actually take so they'll discover a product on, let's say, eBay that's selling for 30 percent more on Amazon than it does for eBay for whatever reason. Maybe the eBay search engine is kind of wonky or something. Um, there's a variety of reasons these things happen. Um, they'll actually take that product, list it on Amazon, never touch it and then someone buys it on Amazon and they'll they'll then go buy it on eBay and then ship it to the Amazon consumer. <laughs> so so that one's interesting because it's like a zero inventory arbitrage that you can do. And then they've you know a lot of these guys have built systems around this. So you know I've run into folks that are 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 Channel Advisor isn't really built for this kind of a thing. Um, so most people build custom software for that. Uh, but I've run into folks that are doing hundreds of millions of dollars in GMV. And, you know, once you take fees out and stuff, it's not hugely lucrative. But they can maybe make five to ten points uh, if they pick their arbitrages right. So, you know, these are these are $100 million businesses, usually without any employees, that are run by robots that sit there and, and do Wall Street-level arbitration on products between stores, marketplaces and things like that. It's pretty pretty wild when you when you think about it. That's I think the the crazy high volume version of that. The low volume version, I think it is pretty common. It's a common side hustle for college kids to do the online to or offline to online arbitrage. There are now like three or four mobile apps that you can literally install on your phone, go scan it, go scan SKUs that are on sale in these, you know, um Retail stores, or even better, go to stores that are having uh, bankruptcy liquidation sales, and the app will tell you in real time what products are profitable to buy from that store and go list on the marketplaces. And the apps are darn polished and sophisticated. They factor in like all the FBA handling and return rates and everything. It's pretty slick. 
Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Cool. Well, we could go on for pricing for the whole show, but we have more questions. Um, this one will probably be a short one. Let's hope so. Well, first of all, thanks, Amit, for that awesome question. That was great. Hopefully, we kind of dug into the, the root of what you're looking for there. Uh, question number two, this one's also for you, Jason. What are the coolest or smartest things that brands and retailers are doing with voice commerce? And what's within reach for smaller brands who don't have a hundreds of thousands of dollar budget to drop on developing skills and, and that kind of thing? Um, and where are we on the maturity curve? So it's, it's kind of three questions in there. So, so I guess question number one is what are some cool skills you've seen, um, that, that show what brands are doing with the, the voice commerce guys? Yeah. And I, I'm going to have to, uh, I, I want to answer your question, but I want to take one step back and sort of highlight, like a lot of times when people talk about voice commerce, they're talking about actually doing transactions, you know, so like, you know, Alexa order batteries type, type, um, experiences. And that certainly is one element of voice commerce. Like I would point out, there's a lot of other parts of voice commerce. There are marketing tools. And so a lot of the skills in the Alexa ecosystem that are skills that are published by a brand are actually more marketing tools, um, primarily trying to drive more interactions with the brands and more brand awareness and more brand affinity than they are sell a specific product like, uh, you know, immediately. And so I, when you say uh, what brands are doing the really smart things, I actually think vo uh, voice transactions are relatively nascent. So it's pretty small. Like in general, we think there's probably 30 million of these devices in, in North America right now. So it's, you know, addressable market compared to the, the 190 million households online is smaller. Um, you know, a, a small majority, so maybe more than 50% of those, those devices have ever been used for a voice transaction. And that certainly isn't the most common way that those households do transactions. So the total number of transactions on voice, there's no good data out there, but, but our guesstimates are that it's pretty low. And so I'm not sure I point to any brand other than Amazon and say, uh, Hey, good job selling a bunch of stuff directly from your voice interface. So the, the, the ways that voice seem most interesting are from more of these marketing things. And so um, there are clever things. Patron has a great skill uh, for helping people explore and discover new cocktails that all conveniently enough can be made with uh, Patron tequila. Um, but it's a, a relatively sticky skill that has uh, like a high um, – uh, active user rate um, that helps Patron build their brand. And once once that skill, you know, gets into the zeitgeist of those homes, it's hard for another brand to come in, you know, with an alternative bartender app, right? Um, and uh, like to me, one of the marquee examples of this is the Tide Stain app, which is kind of clever. You know, you, you uh, spill some pomegranate seeds on your tablecloth and now you've got this pomegranate stain and what's the best way to get that stain out is it vinegar is it club soda how should you pre-treat it what what should you do so this app gives you advice on how to to um treat all the different stains uh that you might come across and it's branded by tide and reminds you to use tide products to help launder all those things so i think some of those kind of brand affinity apps are the smartest apps um then you know there are a few categories where voice transactions are more common so i think the the Pizza Hut app is a, a particularly good uh, example of a, a highly recurring, uh, consistent uh, 
uh, transaction that people tend to do. Obviously, in my personal ecosystem, the the Starbucks um, voice ordering app would be most useful. Uh, because I travel so much, I go to so many different Starbucks that it's actually not super useful in my household. But um, uh, for for many people, I'm sure that the the um, Alexa app to trigger Starbucks mobile order and uh, pay is is a, a relatively high volume app. So I think those are all some good ideas. I would also remind users that uh, there's a significant amount of voice search going on. So uh, Microsoft says 20% of all Bing searches are voice. Uh, I don't know what the Google percentage is. It's probably not as high because it's not built into every every Google device but um, or every laptop that's running Google. But uh, uh, it also is probably a, a meaningful number. And then more and more e-commerce sites are building voice as an interface into their own website. So if you're a, a brand that has shoppers shopping on your own e-commerce site and they're heavily mobile users, it often is easier to say a search query than to type it on a mobile phone. Um, and so, you know, we're starting to see some meaningful adoption from voice search on your site. And so you, when you say like, hey, I'm a smaller brand, I can't afford the investment that Patron or Procter & Gamble made in their their Alexa skills, um, and I would highlight it's actually not that expensive to build a skill. It's pretty expensive to market the skill, which both Patron and, and uh, uh, Procter & Gamble do quite a bit of. Um, some of the the lower cost ways to implement voice are it's, it's pretty inexpensive to have a third-party partner add voice search to your existing e-commerce search platform. Um, and it's super low cost to start doing some voice SEO to start optimizing your keywords for the things people say into Bing instead of the th- way the things people type. So I think it's still super early days. I think voice is a uh, a more useful tool for marketing than it is for actual transactions. I think in the long run, we're going to see voice used for a lot of transactions, but it's going to be a specific type of transaction, which are those um, replenishment, uh, auto-fulfillment type orders. I think you're going to use voice a lot to add and delete things from your regular shopping list. So you're going to say, Alexa, cancel this week's groceries because I'm going to mom's house for Thanksgiving. You're going to see a lot of those kind of things, but I don't think you're going to order brand name dresses in specific sizes with particular prints from, you know, your favorite uh, uh, dress designer via voice. Cause I just think saying all those attributes and knowing the, the, the unique brand terms for each, each designer is, is super unlikely. <laughs> I saw this reminds me of a funny cartoon I saw the other day where uh, someone says to the Alexa, Alexa, order me a Kleenex. And it says ordering Amazon basic tissues. And then they said they spell out Kleenex and Alexa again says ordering Amazon basic tissues. And then they're like, Amazon Kleenex. And it's like, I don't understand what you're saying. Yeah, I think that that (laughs) ironically, that could drive puffs to be the second best uh, selling uh, facial tissue online because at at least Amazon would know what you're saying. (laughs) <laughs> um, little problem with the synonyms at the moment, but, uh, yeah, it, and it's, it's going to, for that replenishment stuff, there's going to be huge fights to be the default brand and lots of interesting stuff, but that's probably a whole separate show on voice commerce that we should do sometime. Um, I want to get to our third question, which is from Patrick, uh, uh, Paraline. and, uh, uh, Patrick says, hi guys, I love the podcast. Listen to it every week. Thanks very much, Patrick. I do too. Um, when the numbers say that e-commerce revenue is up 17%, does that include Amazon? If so, what would be the e-commerce industry revenue increase if you took out Amazon? 
I believe you guys said that Walmart.com is growing at at 60% and Amazon at 30%. Would this mean that if you remove those two companies, then e-commerce as a whole is contracting? And oh, yeah, thanks. That has math in it, so I'm proposing you answer that one. <laughs> cool. Yeah, thanks, Patrick, for the question. It, it is a very good question, um, and this is one that that I've spent a fair amount pondering. So let me let me talk you talk you through some of it. Um, I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. We'll we'll put some of the stuff in the show notes uh, if I lose you anywhere. Um, so first of all. You know what? What's interesting is there's a lot of sources for the data, so that's one of the big variabilities in this whole thing. So you have the four sources I track, and I'm sure there's more, but the the four main ones are Comscore, the U.S. Census Bureau, Forrester, and eMarketer. Um, one of the things you'll always notice is the Comscore, U.S. Census, and Forrester tend to align with each other. They'll be in the ballpark. So, so for example, they'll say 2017 um, e-commerce in the United States was around anywhere between 380 and 420 billion, um, but then eMarketer will say 800. Uh, billion. And so eMarketer is very inclusive of everything. So I think they actually put cars in there, tickets, grocery, um, you know, events, maybe even hotels or something. Um, so, so, you know, when you're looking at these data sources, it's important to under, understand what's in there and what's not. Um, I tend to like the Comscore, the Census Bureau, and the Forrester one because they they do not throw the kitchen sink in there, and it makes kind of thinking about this a lot easier. Um, so what I did is I took the Census Bureau data, um, and if you look at 2016, they say U.S. e-commerce was $359 billion, and then if you look at 2017, $415 billion. So that's a difference of $56 billion, and to your point, uh, you know, 16% growth. So, uh, so that's a that's an important number. So, 56 billion increase year over year in the United States was 16% growth. Now, let's look at Amazon. Amazon's 2016 revenue was 135 billion, and then 2017 was 177 billion. That's the global number. So, you have to Amazon's pretty much right down the middle, um, domestic and non-domestic, and so you have to give it a chop in half. And when you do that, you get the U.S. Uh, is 68 billion in 2016, and 2017 88 billion. That's a difference of 20 billion or 30% growth, which you correctly called. Um, and so if you look at that number, that 20 billion, and we had our 56 billion for overall commerce, then that means Amazon drove 36% of that growth. Um, then if you took if you took Amazon out, then the remaining piece grew 10%. So uh, that's an interesting number. But this is the common thing that I think happens with a lot of these numbers. Uh, Long-time listeners will know that Amazon's revenues are essentially uh, way underreported because of the third-party marketplace. Um, and so we at the Jason Scott Show like to look at the GMV. So, so what's kind of handy is I took the total Amazon numbers and I cut them in half to get to the U.S. Well, you can effectively just kind of double them again to get ballpark GMV. It's a little bit more than that, um, but this will uh, this will make you feel a little bit better because it under-reports Amazon a bit, I believe. Um, so when we do that, we're, we're back to kind of, uh, you know, Amazon's GMV in the U.S. for 2016 being 136 billion, and then 2017 was 177 billion for a difference of 41 billion. Okay, so I think that's the real number that we look at for Amazon. And again, 
e-commerce grew 56 billion, Amazon grew 41 billion. Now you have all you're left with is 15 billion coming from other places or 4%. Um, so, uh, so you're, you're kind of left, you know, what that tells us is, uh, that Amazon, if Amazon grew 30%, then the rest of the world grew, had to grow 4%. Um, and that, you know, uh, just to kind of fact check that, when you look at eBay, they just reported their 2017 numbers. They grew kind of around 4 to 5% in the U.S. So it kind of lines up, right? Um, and then we have Walmart at, you know, they're, I think they're growing at 60% uh, and then they want to go to 40%. Jason, you can fact check me on that one. Yeah, I think it right, last three quarters were like uh, 60, 62, and then 50. Yeah. Now, one of the things that's going on is Walmart's actually pretty tiny in the world we're talking about, um, you know, uh, of e-commerce. So, you know, something like three or four percent of Walmart's sales are online, um, which is, you know, and they're a four hundred billion dollar global retailer. So, um, so they're just really not moving the needle quite fast as fast as some of the other things we're talking about. So, so what's going on here? Um, you know, when the way I like to think about it is, let's build a pie chart. And and this pie chart is a four hundred billion dollar pie chart, and that's the two thousand seventeen, you know, uh, e commerce. So of that, uh, Amazon's one hundred seventy seven billion, or forty four percent of the pie, growing thirty percent. eBay is thirty five billion. That's their US GMV. X autos, uh, and that's nine percent of the pie, growing four percent. Walmart is fifteen billion ish, growing uh, or three percent of the pie, growing sixty percent. Um, and I actually built a little table we'll put in the show notes. And what you're left with is an other bucket that is about one hundred seventy three billion, which is a pretty big slice of the pie. It ends up being like forty percent of the pie, but it's only growing if you do the calculus. It can it has to be flat to effectively two percent. Um, because of the growth that has been soaked up. Now, one of the things that doesn't jive with that is you have Target growing pretty fast. A lot of the omni-channel guys are growing fast. Even some of the e-commerce platforms that report, like Shopify, they're growing their uh, GMV like 20 or 30%. Um, now, they don't really port a same-store sales, so that, that's a little tricky. Um, so they're, they're actually kind of getting new customers in there, and it's not apples to oranges. But you know what's interesting is when I talk to a lot of these data providers and I say – Two things are going on here. The the you know there's someone is really losing a lot of share, and I do think you have that going on. So a lot of these stores, you know, we had more stores closed last year than ever before. Um, and the dirty secret of closing stores is when you close stores, and let's say you're you're Sears, um, you know, when they've closed th- a thousand stores, uh, that creates a headwind for your e-commerce business. And uh, the same is true for all these other folks that have closed stores and whatnot. So that's where a lot of the loss is coming from. But it still doesn't 100% add up. Um, so there's, there is a group, uh, of folks, a lot of them work for these data companies and what, what they believe is happening is the U S commerce data underreports vastly, uh, the size of e-commerce and the growth of it. Um, and then what happens is Comscore and Forrester correlate to that data. So there's this theory out there and, and I'm not the guy to solve this. I, I kind of believe it because it doesn't add up for me when I, when I use the numbers, I just kind of walked you through. Um, it just doesn't add up. So someone would have to be losing like, you know, they'd have to be down like 60% year over year and their e-commerce businesses aren't big enough to, to really move the needle on what we're talking about here. So, um, so that's, that's kind of the most prevailing theory amongst people. And it's not really talked about much, which is kind of funny. It's like this dirty behind the scenes secret of e-commerce that everyone talks about at shows and things, but they don't really write about it. And, you know, what, what they believe is the U S uh, department of commerce data vastly underrepresents the size and growth of the e-commerce market. Uh, so there you go. That, that is 
an interesting theory. I have no way of proving or disproving it, but it, it's kind of I end up landing there because I can't make the math work. Yep. And I, I tend to split that baby. So I, I would, uh, A, I, I do agree and strongly suspect that uh, U.S. Census data underreports e-commerce and like, you know, just a couple data points to sort of be aware of. The methodology that the U.S. Census uses is pretty underwhelming. It just They just weren't designed to track e-commerce. And so essentially they're sending surveys to a bunch of businesses and asking them what they're um, their revenue was, and those businesses decide whether they respond to the survey, and the same businesses don't respond every time. And then the U.S. Uh, census uses a bunch of black box math that they don't disclose to convert, you know, the re- percentage of respondents into a a a national number. Um, and oh, by the way, the U.S. Census doesn't even report e-commerce; they report what they call non-store sales, which was originally catalog sales, which are still in this number. Um, but essentially, it's it's what they call everything that's not in a store, and nobody gives the people responding to the survey any official definition. So, you know, if Target is shipping 70% of their e-commerce orders from a store, they may report all of those sales in their their um, store sales versus non-store sales. There's, there's all kinds of room for uh, messiness in the methodology. Um, and I will tell you that some reasonably credible economists have looked at the U.S. Census data over time and flat found some glaring inconsistencies. And they've written to the U.S. Census asking for clarification and not got very satisfactory answers back. And so these guys would say that there's just too much black box math. It's impossible to reverse engineer in the U.S. Census. Um, there's some funny stuff going on. Um, and so it's it's easy for me to believe. And by the way, we should have them on the show one one time to defend themselves. But um, it's easy for me to believe their numbers aren't perfect. And to your point, everyone wants to index to U.S. Census data. So a lot of the other data sources are based on U.S. Census data. So I tend to believe e-commerce is growing, is a little bigger pie than than what a lot of these data sources say. And I also believe that directionally your pie chart is still right, um, that that Amazon has the lion's share of that that growth. And so, you know, you factor out the, the three or four biggest players in the e-commerce market and the rest of e-commerce is not growing particularly fast. And I have this recurring conversation with all these specialty retailers that are talking about their online and they're, you know, saying how, how they're, you know, trailing the industry average and how concerned they are for their jobs. And I'm pointing out that they're actually dramatically outperforming their peers. Interesting. Um, one last question that we may not have time for a detailed answer, but I, I, I think we can probably give the high level answer and then maybe we'll revisit it. Yeah. This one is very much in your wheelhouse. Uh, and I feel like this one's going to take you an hour to answer. So let's, let's see how this goes. Oh, <laughs> uh, challenge. So, I like it. Okay. So this is from Ari and he says mobile payments in 2018. Can, I'd like to hear more about Android pay, Google payments, uh, the API, I guess, Apple pay, W3C payment request API and etc. Do you have any data that shows that when implemented properly, these things truly reduce the mobile gap? Yep. Uh, and so it, the short answer, we'll do a, a deeper dive in an upcoming show on mobile payments. Um, in general, uh, there's no great public data to uh, show the conversion rate from true mobile wallets like uh, Android and Google Pay have now merged. So we'll just call it Google Pay. Um, and Apple Pay, um, it that 
there, the number of people that use it as a small percentage of total transactions, it does appear that that, that highly loyal um, user base do have a much higher mobile conversion rate. But there's an argument, correlation or causation. You're, uh, um, you know, one of the rare users that's using Apple Pay online because you have this strong affinity with Apple and you're buying a lot of stuff from Apple probably. Um, and so is it, you know, is it a higher conversion rate because you're using Apple Pay or are you using Apple Pay because you're a super loyal, frequent purchaser um, that loves Apple, right? So it, at the moment, those are lower friction experiences. There's some evidence that they have better conversion rate, but it's all anecdotal. Um, and it's not a huge piece of the whole payment pie. Um, the There is absolutely some reasonably credible data out there that conversion rate is better with PayPal than without PayPal. That's the most ubiquitous um, digital wallet in North America. And, you know, it's a lower friction checkout experience. And so I, I think we have lots of evidence that every time we take fields and steps out of checking out, conversions better um, when those customers are already uh, in the PayPal ecosystem and that's offered as a payment option. Um, conversion goes up. That that makes sense to me. And we, we see it in the data of a lot of our private clients. Um, so that makes me think all these mobile wallets have a future if they can get enough users. And then the one thing you listed that I'm most optimistic about of all of this is there's one thing that's not an actual payment wallet. It's a payment technology. And you rightly called it out as the W3C payment request API. This is an open standard that the uh, the HTML consortium essentially published that says, let's have some better functionality in the browser um, to safely uh, enter payment information on behalf of customers when they shop, and let's let's tokenize it, and you know, not store it as as um, uh, sort of insecure text on the on the PC in some way, but let's make it really easy to fill out those form fields for payment. And they've gotten really good adoption on that API. It's now rolled out to all the browsers, and so we're starting to see a lot more retailers adopt it, um, and. Uh, two good things happen when a retailer uses this API for their checkout experience, um, and particularly their mobile checkout experience. Number one, the checkout experience becomes more consistent and follows a standard convention from site to site. So if all sites use the exact same checkout flow and GUI, um, users get better at checking out and they're more comfortable with it. And so it uh, it actually uh, reduces a f- a friction. It increases what we call affordance. Um, and, uh, and you see better conversion rate, um, and, uh, that because this, this API can store all the information that gets entered in that field and auto enter it for you, it essentially dramatically reduces the time needed to check out. Um, and so once you've used it once, it becomes much faster and easier to check out on any e-commerce site anywhere on the web that leverages, this API. So it's, it's one of the things I highly recommend to clients. It's an easy implementation. Um, and everyone should be implementing that, that, uh, payment request API in their, in their checkout experience and particularly their mobile checkout experience. So, um, I'll, I'll leave it at that for now, but like the, at the high level, uh, there's not a great public data source to show that mobile wallets work, but, um, uh, you can take my word for it that I've seen it in my individual clients that in general, it, it does have a measurable effect. Um, and for sure, if you're interested in improving your mobile conversion rate, you absolutely ought to look at that WC3 payment request API and implement it. And with that, it has happened again. Uh, we've perfectly uh, wasted an hour of our listeners' time. Um, 
So now that uh, Scott has redoubled his efforts on Facebook, we highly encourage you to keep the dialogue going on Facebook. Again, all these questions came from Facebook, which was awesome. So um, if we said some stuff that's wildly wrong, which I, I suspect Scott did and I didn't, um, it'd be great great to discuss that on Facebook. We'll see you over on that page. Um, you can obviously find us both on Twitter. We're pretty active there. And as always, if you enjoyed the show or learned anything or it's helped helped your uh, your career in any way, uh, the way you can repay us for all that hard work is you can jump on the iTunes, uh, give us a five-star review. Um, it's really one of the, the primary drivers of SEO, and it'll help other people discover our podcast, and it makes us feel good about ourselves. So um, with that, I will uh, leave it until next time. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.